Welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In this episode, we have a Chinese diasporic exploration. A deep dive into the harmonic tension at the core of Harry Styles' psyche. An Armenian symphonist with a penchant for the duduk. And John Humphreys. By the time this goes out, the first night of the Japanese proms will have taken place. It features the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra performing Mahler 5, Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, and Mendelssohn's Hebrides Overture, a programme that would get a heavy rinsing were it to form any part of a UK prom. I am told by sources within the proms that the Japanese have a very conservative classical taste and that the inclusion of Milo's Scaramouche Suite, which is written for saxophone and orchestra, and a piece by Peter Maxwell Davis was, by their standards, a very progressive mood. So They can have five proms held over five days, and the fourth of which will feature the only work written by a living composer. Toshoi Hoshikawa's Preludio. The proms director, David Picard, will be there offering his support for what we hope will be the second British cultural export to make a big impact on Japanese soil in as many days. Rugby reference. Mm, It's a little rugby reference. I liked it. Take me to Lebanon, Tim. So we're used to hearing Ode to Joy sung as a rallying cry for Brexit protesters on Westminster Palace Green. But... Last night, demonstrators in Lebanon used Beethoven's anthem to form part of their own anti-government protest. A lack of jobs, crumbling public services, rising living costs and severe inequality have led to protests from all sections of society, united under the banner of Everyone Means Everyone. Here's a quick clip of what those protests sound like. Students from New York's Man's School of Music have sent a bizarre letter to Slipped Disc Blog complaining of restrictions imposed by staff on the repertoire they are allowed to play during recitals. An email sent by the faculty to all students requests that all chamber groups and chamber performance classes will carry a centennial theme, implying they are not allowed to perform chamber music from the canon, but instead must play works written by composers associated with the mid-20th century avant-garde, people like John Cage, Morton Feldman, and Henry Cowell. No relation of Simon. Mm, No, that's a good thing, I think. The resulting letter to Slip Disc reads... 
With all due respect, everyone understands the limitations such repertoire imposes on students potentially stifling their creativity and musical growth. Furthermore, great experimental composers such as Cage and Cowell wrote very little of what can be called chamber music. I'm doing fingers up in the air. Yep. This kind of reminds me of my tutors at university who encouraged me to write lots of atonal music, although in retrospect, they were probably just trying to dissuade me from writing in the style of Ludovico Yanaudi, the master. Yeah, but he's got like seven albums out. I know, right? He's smashing it. (laughs) He's killing it. Uh, Another New York State-based conservatoire, the Eastman School of Music, have been in the news after three South Korean members of their flagship orchestra, the Eastman Philharmonia, were denied entry visas for the December tour of China that they're all going on. Mm. Congressional leaders and the Chinese consulate were unable to intervene, and after various meetings and a vote by the members of the ensemble in favour of going, the Eastman Dean Jamal Rossi decided to give the tour the green light. So for those that don't know, since 2016, China has blocked South Korean artists from performing in the country presumably in solidarity with their North Korean allies and in protest over Washington's agreement with Seoul to build their missile shield system, THAAD, in South Korea. Incidentally, it's not just performing musicians that are banned from China. Korean TV shows and K-pop music videos are also blocked from streaming in China, which is devastating. Yeah. In a letter to his colleagues, Dean Rossi laid out the decision-making process, first of all saying that to proceed without the three South Korean students poses a tremendous ethical dilemma. Discrimination in any form and for any reason is abhorrent, which is pretty fair enough. Um, But then he goes on to say that it would be really unfortunate for the 80 other musicians not to have a chance to go. He also uh, references the fact that the university needs to have... Uh, opportunities to recruit, perform, and tour in China in the future. So there's a bit of a balancing act going on there. Mm. The principal and the three South Korean students versus money yeah, uh, and and the collective. It's a thorny issue, Tim. And one man who can handle those kind of thorny issues is John Humphreys. Mm, the former Today Programme presenter has moved over to Classic FM as a guest host. Will he be interrupting people? He will be. He'll be presenting The Breakfast Show for a week from Monday the 28th, between 6 and 9, filling in for the usual presenter, Tim LaRue. He joins a long list of ex-current affairs journalists to move over to the station, including John Suchet, Nicholas Owen and the fabulous Moira Stewart. Well, we do love Moira Stewart here. When asked about the new role, Humphrey said, I'm struggling to think of a greater contrast with my old job. The bliss of Beethoven and Brahms instead of Brexit and backstops. Maybe there really is another world out there. Analysis I like Harry Styles' new song, Tim, and I'm not afraid to say it. Well, that's a little outside your normal pool of listening, isn't it, Sam? Well, that's what I thought originally. Mostly I've been listening to Simon Kingley's side sing 19th century German leader. But you know what? I feel the two may be more linked than we originally thought. Simon and Harry? No, although I do like a rumour. Harry Styles and the German 19th century. Is it time for an attempt to link two improbable pieces of music together? Dang right it is, Timbo. Give us a good segue. Recorded in 2019, the song Lights Up is performed by Harry Styles and was released on International Coming Out Day. 
It features a more spaced out sound, and a bit that sounds like the Cockney musical punctuation, have a banana. I fear that his record company would rinse us for all the dollars we don't have if we played the song, Tim, but I've put a link in the description. Take a listen and enjoy. Or here's a bit of my co-host singing a slice because he's such a talented chap. Step into the light It's so bright sometimes And I'm not ever going back Step into the light Beautiful fella. Someone should give you a record deal. Grazie. But Sam, how could this pop song be linked to the leader of Schubert, Wolf, Mahler and Schumann? Clara or Robert? Both! Well, for starters, let's think about the lyrics, especially in the context of their release date. Much has been made of the possible bisexuality of Lights Up Narrator. Is this Harry Styles coming out on Coming Out Day? Tim, I wonder if you could read us a couple of the lines that those reading the song as bisexual have jumped on. I'm not ever going back. Do you know who you are? And come into the light. They're not explicit. Not as explicit as the music video. Well, if it is the case that Styles is using coded language to acknowledge his bisexuality, then he's picking up on a thread many see in the work of Franz Schubert. In his song Ganymede, Schubert sets words by the poetic titan Goethe that tell the story of the Greek god Zeus seducing the young, beautiful and male Ganymede. Usually it's a bit predatory, but in this telling of the myth, Ganymede hurries to Zeus on a cloud. Others did have scary eagles involved. And Schubert accompanies it with erotically charged music, building in momentum and a sense of arrival on a very cheesy but welcome key change. Like Styles, Schubert's sexuality is much debated. He wanted to marry Theresa Grob, daughter of a local silk merchant. But later in life, he was bunking up with fellas. Schubert had lived with the poet and librettist Meerhofer, but after a trip with his friend Schober to St. Paulton, taken in early 21, Schubert moved in with Schober until his death from venereal disease. That was seven years. Distraught by this exit, Meerhofer wrote the verse Arm Franz, to Franz, to Franz. Thou lovest me, deeply have I felt it, Thou faithful youth, so gentle and fair, then let us steel ourselves, already united in noble, youthful valour. What a horndog old Meerhofer was! On the lyrics, all Harry has said is they're all about sex and feeling sad, which brings to mind the unfulfilled and unfulfillable longing of writers like Arthur Schopenhauer. Styles has given us clues, but he hasn't explained much about the song. Perhaps he believes that the notes should speak for themselves. A couple of 19th century German composers fell out over this, and I'm prone to think Harry would probably side with the spectacularly bearded, lullaby-writing bachelor Johannes Brahms. Rather than the occasionally racist and never-brief Richard Wagner. These two had a feud, Brahms believing that the notes should be allowed to speak for themselves as absolute music, rather than the Listian Wagnerian school of programmatic music, which was explicitly about something, telling a story, describing a particular event. Is it Taylor Swift and Katy Perry? No. 
but it was quite a big deal over the meaning of notes. And what are these notes doing? I hear you shout. What are these notes doing? Well, they're behaving slightly strangely within the parameters of a pop song, at least. The first chord is B-flat minor. Ooh, moody. Exactly. But the second chord confuses us. A-flat major. If it was this, B-flat minor to A diminished, or even this, B-flat minor to F major, we'd know we were in this minor key. But instead, the written version, B-flat minor to A-flat major, suggests we're actually in another key altogether, D-flat major. Why is this significant, he asks rhetorically. Well, it's significant because we don't hear that chord at any point in the song. We're suspended above it. This is a technique used to evoke lunar ethereality by Robert Schumann in Mondnacht. It's stunningly beautiful, and it sounds like this. doesn't let us land on the home key into the final chord of the piece. Harry Styles doesn't get there at all. And in fact, he confuses the tonality of his song even further with these cheeky switches to a B-flat major chord, which paint the core theme of the song, coming out of the darkness and into the light. Styles' chordal accompaniment is more akin to songs like Heiden the Rosenlieden and Earl King, rather than Monarcht, but the tonal sense of floating remains. But Sam, this song has already been listened to by X millions of people. Were the Romantics ever as popular as this? Well, popular styles influenced leader. Brahms was playing piano in a waterfront bordello from the age of 13, and Schubert was knocking out songs in the pub to entertain the patrons, so they were in touch with the man on the street. Leader was also a bit of a reaction to the complexity and artifice of the Italian opera aria with its elements of display. It had to be concise, catchy, and singable. Like a three-minute pop song. Exactly. What of the man, though? Does Harry have anything in common with people living 150 years ago in continental Europe? Well, one of Harry's key shared characteristics is his status as a child prodigy. Internationally recognised from the age of 16, he may not have demonstrated the same musical precociousness as the young Mendelssohn or Clara Schumann, but he was certainly as famous as either of them, thanks to Simon Cowell. And just like several of the 19th century greats, he embarks on mega-tours. Clara would tour outside Germany 38 times in her life, starting from the age of 11 and not stopping even when heavily pregnant. Liszt changed the art of touring so much he invented the word recital, and the fervour he caused was called Listomania. The 19th century even had its power couples, not just the Schumanns, but also the Marlers. They had a narrative that could have come straight out of Hello! magazine. Alma, his wife briefly was in love with Zemlinsky, who we talked a lot about lately. She married Mahler, had an affair with Walter Gropius, one of the founders of the Bauhaus architectural movement. When Mahler died, she married Gropius, 
When she was with Gropius, she started an affair with Franz Werfel, who was a German writer. And when Gropius died, she married Werfel. Scandalous. Even Harry's look has a touch of the 19th century about it. The great swept hair is evocative of a young, pre-beard Brahms. Or perhaps the really rather handsome Hugo Wolf. Was this just an excuse for you to tell us about the lives of some of your favourite romantic composers, though? Uh, well, perhaps. There are certainly pop song writers who have been more directly influenced by the Romantic era, and I'm not going to pretend that Styles and his team are in any way trying to emulate the Schumanns or the Schuberts of this world. More that, despite all that time and space, they've got more in common than not. They were popular then, and Styles is popular now. Perhaps what has changed is the nature of classical music rather than the appetites of audiences. If we could put together some concerts fronted by talented people with terrific hair who have a spectrum of sexualities, keep the song short and totally interesting, make the subject sad, unfulfilled lovers, and let punters drink at the same time, then maybe concerts would be as popular as, if not Harry Styles, than the golden age of the 19th century. Tim, we've flip-reversed our roles this week, and you've been listening to a CD. Indeed. I've been listening to the new disc of music by Armenian composer Avet Tatarian, performed by the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and their chief conductor, Kirill Karabits. This is the next instalment of their Voices from the East series, and it will be released on Friday the 1st of November on the Chandos label. Very cool that we're listening to things in the future. Who is Avet Tartarian? He was born in Baku in 1929, and alongside Kachaturian, he became one of the country's most celebrated 20th century composers. His early works follow in the sort of tonal tradition of Kachaturian, but from about 1967 on, he developed a more individual musical language that embraced atonality, chants, elements, electronics, and most importantly, Armenian folk culture Ooh. and ancient liturgical music. He also spent much of his working life living in complete isolation on the shores of Lake Sevan, which on Google looks to be utterly magical. Like a sort of composer monk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, within the Arvo Pet sort of vein, I'd say. He wrote eight and a half symphonies, all in all, composed over two decades from about 1969 on, and they're generally seen as the, the backbone of his musical achievement. Although each are very different. The third and fourth and fifth feature folk instruments, and the eighth features a tape track. Ooh. And they're all heavily imbued with the spirit of Armenia and its traditions, its landscape and its history, and the legacy of the genocide perpetrated by the Ottomans during and just after the Second World War. Oh. In summing up his symphonies, he wrote, We are all living on the threshold of terrible apocalyptic judgment. It has always seemed to me that my symphonies are a cry of the soul for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. And this disc features his third and fourth cry of salvation, written for Duduk, Zuna, and orchestra. What 
who and why are Daduk, Zerner and Orchestra? Well, firstly, a Daduk is this wonderful traditional Armenian double reed instrument made from apricot wood. Oh. It sounds good, apricot wood. It sounds like chocolate. It really is just beautiful. And you might recognise it from Paul McCartney's song, Jenny Wren. There's a wonderful Daduk solo. Less chocolatey is the Zerner. That's also a, a reed instrument that seems to be fairly ubiquitous across Eurasia and Western Asia. And they're performed on this disc by Tigran Alexanvan and Vahe Hovanesian. I don't know if I'm saying I apologise for my pronunciation. Get in no. touch, guys, if you want to uh, correct him. Yes, and the symphonies are separated by two gorgeous duets for Duduk. One is a traditional folk song and another one is by Sogomon Komatas, who was an um, Armenian priest, composer, choir master, and is actually considered the founder of the Armenian National School of Music. A heavy flavour of Armenia on this disc then, Tim. What are the symphonies all about? The basis of both the third and fourth is the contemplation of human existence, particularly in response to tragedy, in particular the death of his younger brother Herman in 1975. The third symphony is in three movements, the outer two dominated by a percussion onslaught led by timpani, with the two lowest drums tuned a quarter tone apart, which makes this muddy gong-like tombra that was actually inspired by a Buddhist meditation ritual that he witnessed on a visit to Mongolia. Wow. We also get violent, partly improvised screams on the zurnas and wailing horns, which apparently evoke a memory from when the brothers were children and Herman had a Japanese wind-up toy which laughed manically. The third movement in particular actually reminds me of the 1968 Jerry Goldsmith score for The Planet of the Apes, which features Tibetan horns and driving percussion. And I couldn't help but picture that famous chase scene when listening to this, which is probably not mm. what he had in mind at all, but <laughs> no matter. And the middle movement is primarily made up of drones on the Duduk's very gentle, lots of silence, the odd chime, which in the score is supposed to be the sound of pieces of railway track being whacked. The movement, according to the composer, related to Vogba, which is a form of Armenian lamentation. The fourth symphony was written a year after the third, and it's essentially one continuous movement with sort of gradually morphing atonal textures and giant wedges of glissandine harmonics in the strings that kind of reminiscent of Ligeti's atmospheres. Yeah. You know and the odd mournful harpsichord chord just sort of plonked on top. <laughs> and according to the composer, this explores sound as a part of the universe and its oral atmosphere leaves the listener alone with himself, and there starts a study of one's id through sound and silence, music of space and earth. It sounds jolly interesting, Tim, and I personally haven't heard any Armenian music influenced by Japanese wind-up toys before, but is it actually worth sitting down and listening to, buying, and all that kind of stuff? A good question. In terms of quality of recording and playing full marks go to both the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and Kirill Karabitz. It really is excellent playing, and it does full justice to Tatarian's vision, I'd say. And as much as I might have sounded a bit glib about the atonal aspects of the music, I actually find it really compelling. I can't quite explain why, but there doesn't seem to be anything academic or abstract about this music. As with so much of the mid-20th century avant-garde, the names Boulez come to mind. It feels like it has it's sort of come from somewhere deeply personal and it's 
both meditative and exciting. And whilst there aren't exactly what you would call good tunes, with the exception of the two folk pieces in the middle, there are some deeply evocative soundscapes that successfully transported me to the shores of Lake Savannah and really helped me get into the head of this grieving, isolated composer. The overture to Mozart's one-act songspiel Bastien und Bastien, written in 1768. Beethoven's Third Symphony, Movement Number One first performed in 1805. You got to pick a pocket or two. Personal chat. Personal chat. Personal chat. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Sam, you've been a-roving. I've been a-roving. I was roving all the way to Southbank Centre to hear Elgar's The Apostles in Royal Festival Hall. It was with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Martin Brabins. Two full choruses, the BBC Symphony and the LPO Chorus, plus a glittering array of soloists. Roddy Williams was mm. playing Jesus, Alice Coots was Mary Magdalene, Elizabeth Watts was Mary Allen, Clayton was John, David Stout as Peter, Brindley Sherratt as Judas, and nine young fellas from the Royal College of Music were being the Apostles' Chorus. They looked proud as punch. And uh, I swear I saw one of them as Elder Price in Book of Mormon quite recently. Mm. Uh, although, I, I mean, I have fact-checked this, and it isn't true, but he's an absolute ringer for the guy playing Elder Price. Anyway, Good for him. they were really pleased to be there. So, just the apostles in the programme. Yes, thank goodness. Uh, it's uh, 145 minutes long, Tim. Oh, my. Which, uh, it's really Elgar's closest call with writing a romantic opera. It was first performed in 1903, and it's sort of a final evolution form of the oratorio. A religious story, Jesus' last few days, being told by soloists, chorus and orchestra, all performing on stage but without any movement or action. Kind of like Dream of Drunches. Yes, yeah. but sort of on steroids, bulked up beyond belief. And did the two and a half hours feel long or short? Well, I remember we went and watched Die Valkyrie uh, mm. in the same hall with the same orchestra. Yeah. And it felt very digestible to oh, me. Oh, boy. It was full of momentum. And even though it was close to four hours, the breaks came in the right places and it was it felt very fluid. This is not a tight two and a half hours. There are long sections that frankly have me checking the programme notes and are a little dull, which is a shame because the opening really reaches out and pulls you into the present. You are involved in the drama and you can't help thinking about, you know, who England will be playing in the final because the orchestration and the musical storytelling is so vivid and spectacular. Uh, the chorus's first entry is a real moment of, sort of hushed unanimity. Everyone's on the same pitch and there are 200 of them singing. It's really glorious. 
the problem for me is there weren't enough of those kind of moments uh, or variations in the massive romantic swirl to justify such a protracted telling of a story we're all pretty familiar with. Mm. And is that the fault of the performance, do you think? I personally don't think that. I, I want to commend everyone involved with the preparation and performance because it must have been a hell of a job getting all the admin and rehearsing done for this one. Mr. Brabins, guest conductor for the night, uh, who looks much sweeter now. First name Bilbo? No. <laughs> Martin. Martin, Martin. He's got this nice little owly beard, and I saw him a few years ago at Bristol University shredding student conductors, and he looked quite fierce, and he looks very cuddly now. He really gave his all. I thought it was a very committed performance from him, especially considering he's just opened the new Harrison Burt Whistle Opera at ENO this week, um, Mask of Orpheus. So props to him. Hell of a week for him. Well done. What I really liked about his approach, it was a little bit like being a West End MD. It was very authoritative and assured, trusting the fine players in front of him to give it expression and accompanying the singers with real sensitivity whilst managing keeping this big show on the road. The energy from the chorus and orchestra was excellent and well-maintained throughout such a long work. The only tripping point for me was the soloists. How so? There were some big names there. Yeah, some big names, uh, but not especially big voices. <gasps> oh, yeah. It was, it was kind of like an oratorio lineup. I, I mean that sort of more uh, like a classical or Baroque oratorio. Maybe more suited to singing Haydn's Creation or Beethoven, Mrs. Solemnis than this full romantic symphony orchestra behind them really kicking into gear. You needed some probably some Wagnerian kind of voices. It felt like some of those big names, notably Roddy and Elizabeth Watts, were having to sing almost as loudly as they possibly could just to be heard. And that had a, an impact on how expressive they could be. I couldn't make out a single word that Elizabeth was singing, and they were written in front of me. Roddy also flew a little bit close to the wind on a Kermit kind of impression. What? Well, yeah, when it just gets a bit like that. Because, I think that's not because they're not fantastic singers. It's because they've been asked to do something they're not really built to do. Alice Coote showed her class and uh, experience by making the orchestra accompany her dynamics. And the most hirsute tenor in town, Alan Clayton, can basically do anything he wants. He's got a superstar voice, so he wasn't held up by whatever was going on behind him. Brindley Sherratt, which is my new favourite name, who was playing Judas, uh, escaped most of that challenge because whenever he starts singing, Judas starts singing, the orchestra totally stops, which must feel a little bit scary, and is in opposition to Jesus, who, whenever he utters anything, is wreathed in this aura of organ and hushed strings, mm. um, which must feel a lot more comfortable. I Poor thought. old Judas, eh? Well... I, I think it takes a brave person to read that into Elgar's theology, <laughs> but you're welcome to. So it sounds to me like it must have been a huge use of resources. I think it must have. I've heard it described as box office death before, because even if you were to sell out, you might not cover the costs, because you've got so many soloists, so many people involved. And frankly, the only audience that were attracted were the, the grey and the good. We must have been the youngest people in the hall by a factor of three. Mm. I mean... Was um, it very white as well, I'm guessing? It was, Tim, yeah. Not on stage, especially, but definitely in the audience. Mm. Okay, so why was it being performed then? It's being performed as part of Southbank's Isle of Noise series, which is trying to survey 300 years of music from these islands, either made or inspired by Britain. In that series, they seem to be digging up some really interesting stuff. Alice Mary Smith, uh, notably, who's got some lovely romantic uh, music. But there's also dinosaurs like this that they kind of feel obliged to wheel out. And to me, it's just a hangover of a different era's 
punitive theology and verbose, I don't know, use your word, hit him, grandiloquent mm. music making, uh, that doesn't really chime with today. It was a really good effort by the performers. I just don't think programmers need to include it for another, I don't know, 100 years. Composer fact file, Edward Elgar. Born Worcestershire on June the 2nd, 1857. He worked as a solicitor alongside his early musical career. He was self-taught. He was a fan of Wolverhampton Wanderers, but his attendance at games may have been linked to the presence of a girl he fancied, Dora Penny. A keen amateur chemist, he invented the Elga sulfuretted hydrogen apparatus that was briefly produced commercially. One of the Enigma variations is supposedly named after a dead dog called Dan. Now replaced by Adam Smith, Elgar used to appear on 20 pound notes. Pianist Hans Richter rated Elgar as the greatest modern composer in any country. He was an early adopter of recording technology and he conducted most of his works onto moving coil microphone. In 1923, Elgar made a little documented trip to South America where he embarked upon a cruise of the Amazon River. He named his sunbeam-branded bicycle Mr. Phoebus after the Greek god of the sun. He died in 1934 and is buried next to his wife in the Little Malvern Church. The composer of many religious pieces once said, I always said God was against art, and I still believe it. Give me all in my I agree with Nick. Give me all in my lamp, I pray. I agree with Gordon. Give me all in my lamp, keep me burning. I agree with every single word. Keep me burning till the break of day. You must have a consensus. Earlier this week, I went and spoke to the composer Alex Ho in his home. He made me some tea. We sat down. We talked about his upcoming concert at the Hackney Round, which features three of his pieces. We also spoke about his Chinese diasporic identity and how that informs his composition. Keep an eye out for Alex. He's doing some really impressive stuff and I suspect he will become a more commonplace name in years to come. So Alex... Coming up on Tuesday the 5th at the Hackney Round is an immersive concert, if that's the right description, I don't know, featuring three works written by you. Could you quickly take me through each of these pieces and maybe give a little explanation of what to expect? Yes, of course. Um, well, firstly, thanks so much for having me um, <laughs> on this pleasure. podcast. I think. Thank thanks, you very much. Thanks for bringing me tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, excitingly, in uh, just over a week's time from now, I guess, yeah, showing three pieces at the Round Chapel in Hackney. And so I have to say that, um, although I guess my name is kind of on each piece, each work is definitely a collaboration yeah. um, in kind of the deepest sense of that. And so firstly, uh, Dreaming Clouds is a piece for kind of movement and music um, through solo violin and dance, which is performed by myself and Julia Cheng, the incredible and brilliant choreographer, director, brilliant artist. Yeah. And this piece, I guess, really explores us as British Chinese individuals. It explores 
our own kind of personal stories um, that we have, uh, I guess, experienced being brought up in the UK with parents slash grandparents from Hong Kong. And so this was really kind of an experiment to work out, you know, the ways in which our methods, not least through music and movement, can potentially collide, overlap, mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which they, they, they are just different and how to just embrace that, really. It's simply about us. And rituals and resonances? Indeed, yeah. So this is um, another, another collaboration um, between myself and Raylan Yont, who plays the Yang Chin. And yeah, I guess for those of you who are unsure of what this uh, instrument is, it's a Chinese hammered dorsimer, mm. um, which basically means it's a, a wooden box with strings running across it, and the player, Raylan, hits them with uh, bamboo mallets, mm. similar to um, a cymbalum in, yeah. in Hungarian yeah. culture. Yeah, and so this piece was, uh, again, the f- a first collaboration between myself and... Raylan, and to be honest, for me, it was just such a joy to, you know, work with a new instrument from a non-Western culture, which comes with a lot of um, interesting things. And so really kind of exploring the instrument and what that means, again, kind of as a British Chinese individual, like working with what you could almost call a a Chinese-ish object was, Mm. I guess, the, the starting point for us. And then your final piece, which is a world premiere... Untold, and this is for stage as well, isn't it? Mm, yeah, exactly. So this actually brings in a few uh, a few different yeah disciplines and, and artists. So first first and foremost, um, it's a collaboration between myself and Julia Cheng, the choreographer, dancer, director, Tangram, which is a new ensemble that Raylan and I actually co-direct, which is a Ensemble made up of a mix of Chinese and Western instruments. And finally with Keith Pun, who is a fantastic Western operatic countertenor. So there is clearly a Chinese influence that threads through all this music, and it's no surprise considering, as you mentioned, your own Chinese heritage. Can you tell me in what way this influence is important to you in your output? And what, what are you trying to explore by combining Western and Chinese culture in this way? Mm. So I guess first and foremost, it's more about exploring what it means to be British Chinese, which is, um, for me, different to being Chinese mm. um, and indeed being being British at that. And so it's really exploring what diasporic identity is, you know, what, what it means to grow up in a place where, you know, which is, which is different and separate to your heritage. Mm. And so I guess it's a, it has very much been a journey. And I, part of what Tangram do and what we're interested in is actually opening up spaces beyond the East-West dichotomy. So what I mean by that in, in just simple terms is we often come across in the news and media the idea of like China versus the West yeah, or East it's, meets West. It's shoved down your throat. Absolutely. <laughs> like, especially the right wing person. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the less said, well, the better. <laughs> but I guess to like, from our side, even just the idea of East meets West seems very ironically foreign <laughs> to us. Yeah. Um, because as, you know, as, as British Chinese people, I mean, Raylan's uh, American Chinese, like, our, our own existence almost undermines this idea of East meets West, these two different things. Yeah. Like, what, what, therefore, what, what are we and where are we in this, this kind of black and white mm. um, situation? I guess what this all 
means for me and what, what I mean by exploring British Chinese identity is, is, is exploring what it, um, what this kind of diasporic identity means as its own separate-ish thing, yeah. which is separate to British China, which is separate to East meets West, and really celebrating this almost quite like distinct culture. And I think hopefully it, it's something which other people with similar experiences can, can latch onto and yeah, feel, feel a connection with. Yeah. When you're composing, in that creative process, do you find that you're, you're looking at the two styles, musical cultures separately and trying to bring them together? Or, or is it something that just seems to come naturally as one in the way that you describe as a separate entity? And if it's the former, does one of those voices have priority mm. when it comes through, do you think? Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating question. I think for me, it actually is more of the latter. I think it feels, to me at least, it feels more organic than kind of thinking yeah. about it as Western and, and Chinese elements and the way in which they, they come together. I have to say that obviously there are things which, I don't know, they, I guess they're kind of set up. So even, even Town Ground is having... An ensemble of like Western flute, piano, Chinese percussion, and the Yang Chun, which is of course a Chinese traditional instrument. Mm. In that sense, you can see like a, a mix of Chinese and Western elements just because of the instrumentation. Yeah. However, in in terms of the composition process, for me, it's more. I tend to just like think about something which I've experienced, or thinking about something which is on my mind, and then just the the music seems to come it's out to come, of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of more more technically. The, writing for the Yang Chun, is that something that you had to sit down with somebody that was able to play it with, was it a family member or was it somebody external that, that you'd, you'd met? Mm. How did that come about? Yeah, I'm really glad you ask. So yes, for, for me it was critical that Raylan um, was there to very much handhold me and, and mm. guide me into how to write for the Yang Chun. It's an incredible instrument, but because the way the strings that are laid out in a very kind of non-linear way, and like unlike the piano, for instance, it's not kind of C then C sharp and mm. D then D sharp, etc. It's it's just not linear in that sense. And so having Raylan, you know, firstly just send me a diagram of where all the strings are, so I know what is possible to play. Mm. Um, but also incredibly show me the the timbral colours, the the range of things which the Yangqing can do in terms of extended techniques. And you know, it's a quite a big instrument really. There's there's lots of wood, there's strings, there are bridges, there are lots of things which can just make sounds. Yeah. And so yeah, having Raiden kind of show me what is possible was integral to, to yeah. and resonances, not least. Did you have to spend a huge amount of time listening to pre recorded music and music that had been written for the engine before that then was that I'm mm. guessing that was a huge amount of the process oh my gosh yeah, yeah absolutely immersing so. yourself in that world yeah I mean I guess you, you really have to I mean I, I, at this point I guess you know I've, I've heard orchestras play I've, I know what a flute sounds like yeah. in my head I, I don't need someone to show me but Yangchen I, I really mm. did and to some extent still do um, need a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of help to be honest yeah the first thing you know Rain and I had decided to collaborate we actually have a mutual friend in the States who put us in touch. Um, and Raylan had just finished his undergrad in Boston um, and was moving to London, so we decided to collaborate. Um, and I was like, great, this mm. cool instrument. I was, of course, like, we were interested, both interested in exploring uh, Chinese diasporic identity, and so it was a nice point to, to explore collaboratively. Mm. Yeah, so the first thing I wrote for Raylan, I wrote just from kind of watching some YouTube videos, hearing, getting to know the instrument just for the first time. Um, and so I showed him some sketches. And... He played them to me and we were both just like, 
this is not the one. This, this is really not the one. And then I guess the most amazing thing happened, which was that Raylan just casually was like, oh, there's something I was just trying on, trying out the other day. And what he did was a very simple thing. He just played on one string um, going horizontally across the board. And the way that that yang chin is stringed means that as you move horizontally, left to right, right to left, you actually pass onto different strings. And so the pitch changes. And it's the most kind of magical sound, which I, yeah, too much I can't really describe any more elegantly or inelegantly. Mm. And so this actually became the seed from which Rituals and Resonances grew yeah. out from. And, then, and it's the, the sound which you'll hear um, yeah. at the very opening of the piece. You may completely disagree, but I wonder whether in going through that experience and discovering this culture that has been part of Chinese history for however many hundred thousands of years, did you feel that you perhaps got slightly more in touch with that part of your identity that was Chinese? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was born and raised in London. I mean, the Yangtze for me really did, really, really did represent almost at that point in my life what Chinese heritage was, which was mm. something which I just did not know yeah. very much about beyond cuisine, beyond yeah. family, Chinese tea. And so it was a really, um, just a really new and wholesome experience, That's I guess, right, yeah. for the young chin. That yeah. must have been really special. That's really mm. lovely. I have read that you've had music performed in China. Have you noticed any difference in the way that your music has been received there in comparison to here? Yeah, another brilliant question, to be honest. So, yeah, it's so much to say, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... Context. <laughs> um, yeah, back in 2016, after finishing my undergrad, I was lucky enough to be commissioned to write a new piece for the Shanghai Philharmonic Orchestra, mm. which ended up being a piece for Sym Western Symphony Orchestra, I should say, and uh, which is the Chinese fiddle. It's a small string instrument with two strings, which people rest on their knee. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was quite a bizarre experience, actually, uh, in some ways. I, I went to Shanghai, um, they were very generous and flew me out there for rehearsals and, and the concert itself. And actually, firstly, just like in a non, on a non-musical level, it, they, they really did treat me like a, um, yeah, like, like, like a foreigner, I guess. And I understand yeah. it because firstly, my parents are from Hong Kong. And so my, my language would be Cantonese, which I don't yeah. speak very well anyway. And so just the element of you know, them knowing that I didn't speak Mandarin, that was, I could really feel that sense of foreignness and, and difference, yeah. which two minutes when I landed in Shanghai, I was like, wow, everyone looks like me. Mm. You know, haven't really felt like that before, especially in the West, maybe in Chinatown in London. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even, yeah, just that element was, uh, yeah, something which has really that's, stayed that's straight, with me. Yeah. And then musically, yes, equally so. I mean, and I guess the reason why I say that first is because that, I'm sure that kind of colours the perception of my music, which for them, I think they, they at that point, they really did perceive it as, oh, this is Western music. And, you know, we've, we actually commissioned, they commissioned, sorry, five composers from outside of China. So a few from the States, one from Poland, et cetera, one from New Zealand, um, these pieces. And the name of the concert was Hearing China. Mm. And so the point, therefore, was, you know, to show Western composers 
what Chinese musical culture is like. And so each person wrote a piece for Western Symphony Orchestra plus a Chinese traditional instrument. So it was very much introducing us to this different culture. And again, just in terms of my own, my own look, I guess I should say, it was a bizarre experience, but like ultimately one which was super rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess like my other experience with China is, um, I didn't actually go in the end, but just last month in September, I had a piece kind of toured Shanghai, um, which was actually a piece for clarinet trio. So that's um, clarinet, piano and cello mm. and ping pong players. Wow. Um, which was, yeah, a different, a different piece. It was commissioned by Chinese Arts Now, an organisation in London, in mm. fact, for Soundstate Festival in South Bank in last January. Um, and so this toured in, in China. And so I, my impression that the reception was good. But I, I yeah, because of, just because of the, I guess, the uniqueness of this yeah. piece, I, I'm sure that was a, a factor. Now, I don't know if you, if this is, if it's within your expertise, but... I expect most of our listeners and, and definitely myself have limited comprehension of the classical music scene within China that you were just describing. On the face of it, it seems to be flourishing. I, I read today that there are eighty over 80 professional orchestras. There's 60 million piano students, apparently, I'd, which seems like a crazy stat, and 11 conservatoires. And there are composers coming out of China who are starting to make a name for themselves, Tan Dun, Chen Yi, hmm. who um, they are becoming more familiar here, I'd say. From where you're standing, is this also the impression that you have? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a huge market in China for it. To be honest, anything Western, um, especially when it comes to music, hence all these um, piano students, you know, all these violin students, just like... Yeah. And a lot of these people end up coming to the West to study at Conservatoire yeah. here. And so I think this actually leads on to a, a slightly different but interesting point, which is people like Tan Dan, who uh, New York-based Chinese composer, mm. it's actually the composers who have left China and um, migrated to the West, who, I guess, in, to my perception, are the ones who are getting yeah. a lot of attention yeah. um, for the right reasons. They, they write brilliant music, like Huang Ro is another mm. in New York. Du Yan, who won the Pulitzer Prize um, in 2016. These composers really are, like, incredible. But I guess for me, they are... They're, they're a different... They're, they're different to Chinese composers based in China. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there are a lot of things attached to that, like whether that's kind of, you know, censorship or, you know, even just like distance, you know, in the UK at least we hear a lot more about what's happening in the US than in China musically. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess in like some attempt to summarise, on the one hand there's this huge market in China and especially students coming to the West to learn music, equally places like Juilliard I think are opening conservatoires in China mm. as a, almost like a franchise thing. But in terms of the composition realm, itself for me as far as I can tell from being positioned in London it's Chinese diasporic yeah. composers or yeah. maybe I say, say transnational composers who yeah. are yeah getting a lot of worthy attention. Alex thank you very much for having me and for talking about your work and your compositional process it's really interesting. Once again we'll just say Tuesday the 5th at the Hackney Round and you can catch three of your collaborative pieces and you yourself of course will be yeah, there I will be there <laughs> lovely great well thank you very much thanks so much thank you
What's coming up in the world of classical music this week, Tim? Well, I'll tell you. Up until the 10th of November, it's the Brighton Early Music Festival. On Sunday the 3rd, there's a performance of The Art of Moog. And on Wednesday the 6th, there's a Scottish Baroque night. And on the 2nd, 3rd and 7th, you can catch early music down local Brighton pubs. On Saturday the 2nd of November, there'll be a lock-in at King's Place. Folk roots. Park yourself on a cushion and surrender yourself to the folkish murmurings of the Aurora Orchestra, performing Bartok, Kodai and Schulhoff, all in the dark. On the same night, at Milton Court Concert Hall in Barbican, you can hear music created by artificial intelligence from the Britain Symphonia, which is an evening inspired by the life and work of the world's first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace. I don't know, and I don't know anything about her, and so I'm going to look Ada that up afterwards. Lovelace. There we go. Tuesday, the fifth of November. Thirty years since the death of Ukrainian American pianist Vladimir Horowitz. Ah, oh, check out his performance of Schubert's Third Impromptu on YouTube. It will make you weep as it did me. Aww. on Thursday, the seventh of November, my birthday at the Hind Street Methodist Church in London, in association with the National Autistic Society, National Opera Studio alumni and autism sufferer James Robinson May sings a series of nine poems he has written which chart the condition and the havoc it plays with his emotional life and relationships. The poems have been set to music by Michael Siansai Wills, who will accompany May in the Song Cycle's world premiere. Mm. Friday the 8th of November, which is Arnold Bax's 136th birthday, Olafa Arnolds presents OPIA at the South Bank Centre, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a festival takeover event put together by the Icelandic composer that will occupy all of the South Bank's venues and have performances from Grand Brothers, Rai, Poppy Ackroyd, Hani Arani and Josa. I don't know if I'm saying that last one right. Opie apparently means the ambiguous intensity of looking somebody in the eye. And Mm. Arnold's chose the the name to reflect the closeness of the creative community to which these artists belong. That is not something you get to see every day. Tuesday, the 12th of November, composer and chemist Alexander Borodin will be celebrating his 186th birthday. Or maybe it will just be you and me, Tim. It's one that he shares with Anne Hathaway, Karl Marx, the composer, Charlie Hodgson, former England rugby player, Ryan Gosling, Naomi Wolf, uh, Neil Young, Charles Manson, the list goes on, Grace Kelly, and even the former South African ruler, Piet Retief. Whose eponymous town I passed through this summer. That could be a really good birthday party. Imagine. It's probably got the edge on mine, anyway. Mm. Wednesday the 13th of November, Shards at Schatz Palace, Homerton. Is that how you say it? Chats? I'm going to say chats. Shats. Shards at Shats. Shats Palace. The experimental vocal group will be performing tracks from their debut album, Find Sound, which I listened to this morning. It's really good. They're very uh, cool. Alongside synths and percussion. Awesome. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Couple of quick thank yous before we leave you to it. Firstly, to the Chandos label for facilitating those MP3s of the Tertarian disc by the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. That's the best you've said, Tertarian, all day. I know, God, it's been a struggle. Also, a big thank you to Tessa from Premier for facilitating the link between us and Chandos. Also, thank you to Graham from LPO for sorting out a couple of tickets to the Apostles. Sorry, I didn't enjoy it more. 
<laughs> and a big thank you, of course, to composer Alex Ho for those lovely chats we had. A final note to say thanks very much to the Fidelio Cafe guys who uh, hosted us for a night of drinks out in Clerkenwell a little while ago. If you happen to be in the area, do drop in. They're very friendly and classical music lovers.